What a great Sunday morning already. Amen? Amen. Um, for all you kids and all you teachers that had Thursday and Friday off, congratulations. Isn't that awesome? Um, Four-day weekend. You know what I think it was is that the teachers, they... There are no, you know, prospect snow days anytime. You know, it's been 50-something degrees and everything. They said, you know what? We need some snow days. We're calling it the flu, and we're just gone. We, you know, pop, push the kids up on the parents. Great. I think that's what happened. Uh, but, but I'm glad that, that, I'm glad that you guys did. That's great. Um, uh, today, you guys, we're continuing in our series about adventure killers, about what kills the great spiritual adventure. This is your first time here. Uh, my name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. And our theme this year is the adventure. Uh, last year's theme was fruitfulness. This is uh, the adventure. And uh, this series is what kills the great spiritual adventure. Last week we talked about losing your edge, about uh, the, the continual pull to lukewarmness that we have. We have to actively uh, work against that. And today we're talking about the adventure never happens for someone living someone else's faith. Uh, when I was a kid, my, uh, my, my family pastime was baseball. My dad loves baseball. He would get Reds baseball tickets for us and we'd go and we park. We have all these traditions. We park in Covington, walk across the, the Blue Bridge. I was always terrified that I'd, I'd fall in and, 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 every, we, and we'd get a, a bag of peanuts there and the, um, we'd get a hot dog and the seventh inning we'd get a frosty malt. Uh, it was great. Dad found out later that the frosty malt was how dad kept us quiet uh, so he could watch the game. Um, but that was what we did as a family. Uh, now that I'm an adult, I go to zero Reds baseball games. I don't take the family. I don't buy tickets. Why? Is it because I don't like them? No, I, actually, I really liked them. I had, had a great time. But the thing is, baseball was my dad's thing. It wasn't mine. Um, and so, guys, a lot of times, faith becomes that. It, it, we enjoy it. it, it it's, it's great. But it's just not, it's not our thing. It belongs to somebody else. Maybe a parent. Maybe friends, maybe spouse, but it's not ours. And, um, and one thing, that the, the first thing I want to tell you is that Christianity, you guys, isn't something we do or something we know. It's someone we love. Remember that. Okay, remember that. Romans 5, 6 through 8 says this. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will someone die for a righteous person, though for a person, a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We, and most people in here know that. If you don't know that, you do now. Christ died for us. But I want you to make it personal. Christ died for me. It's different. See, guys, I love the fact that families worship together. I really do. I love the fact that so many people love this church. I, I love the involvement and the engagement in the community. We've worked hard to emphasize and to build that community. However, those things can be substitutes for a true, authentic relationship with Jesus Christ. God doesn't have any grandchildren, you guys. He only has children. He doesn't have grandchildren. He only has children. Each one of us has to come to God and be, be adopted as his child. All right, so here are a few questions to see if maybe you're living the gospel of somebody else. Um, here's a question. Do you come to church when the rest of your family doesn't? That's a good question. There, there, was, there were two guys that were fishing on a Sunday morning. 
And one of the guys starts to feel a little guilty, and he goes, you know, I, I, I really guess we should have gone to church this morning. The second guy looks at him and goes, I couldn't have gone to church this morning. My wife's sick with the flu. Hmm. So, and second question, how many times per week do you ask questions regarding your faith? You know, how many times in conversations do you bring your faith up? Not when somebody asks you, but when you initiating the conversation. That's an interesting question. And for you parents, um, uh, how, here's a follow-up question to see whether your kids have their own faith. Do they ask you questions about faith? I've found as a parent, if my children are not asking questions about their faith, they're probably not owning it. That's probably the number one thing that, uh, that, that you as parents need to see in your kids, that they own their own faith. Um, uh, here's another question. Could your life be lived by an unbeliever? Could a person that's never been baptized never been forgiven of their sins, never has, does not have the Holy Spirit living within them, being led and being directed by the Holy Spirit of God, could they live your life? Could they easily make the same decisions that you make, live the same lifestyle with very little problem? If that, if that is the case, that's a problem. And I've observed, you guys, that there are far more people in the indifferent camp than in the rebellious camp because we aren't doing anything particularly bad, we don't really notice. Um, uh, kind of, we're jumping through the hoops, we've got church attendance, we've got baptism, and we've got maybe even serving. These things are wonderful, I love them, but they aren't the Christian life. Jesus is the Christian life. Understand, Jesus is the Christian life. And we can, and not stories about him, not songs about him, or even service from him. Sometimes growing up in church or being part of a Christian family or anything can keep us so close to God that we don't even notice him. An example. I've lived in Kentucky for 40 of my 45 years on this planet, and I have never been to the Kentucky Horse Park. How many of you all have lived most of your life in Kentucky and never been to the Kentucky Horse Park? Okay, you guys are much more Kentucky than I am because I, I, have, I have never been. I, I just figure, hey, it's there. If you ask anybody in New York who lives in New York if they've been to the Statue of Liberty, the answer is no. No way. They, they, yeah, people that live there don't go there. Um, because these things are so close, we figure we can always go see it. I lived in Jessamine County for 22 of my 25 years as an adult, and I only went to High Bridge for the first time last year. I did a wedding at Camp Nelson. Otherwise, I never would have gone to Camp Nelson. I've been to India five times. Been to Nepal, been to Chile, been to Mexico. I've been to England, I've been to Austria, Holland. It, it, you know, all these, I've never been to my own backyard. And for people of living the gospel, somebody else, God is like that, so close. We never engage. Here's another one. Does anyone know their license plate number? I don't. I see it every day, but I don't see it. Okay, so a lot of times you grow up in a Christian family or a Bible Belt community. The closest can actually keep you away. You unknowingly un embrace the gospel of somebody else. Living someone else's faith and devotion instead of owning it for yourself. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is different than the gospel of somebody else. The gospel of Jesus Christ is personal. It says this in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What I found is the gospel of somebody else has a positive that can turn into a negative. Okay, it has a positive that can turn into a negative. Here's what it is. In order for a person to truly engage with Jesus, we have to understand that we're lost. See, our culture doesn't look in terms of lost and saved anymore. We look at terms of bad and good. We don't say this person is lost or this person is saved. We say this person is good or this person is bad, right? 
That's how we think of those. We don't think in terms of lost and saved anymore. And if you grew up in a Christian home, you probably grew up in a home, probably, where the worst of humanity was not seen. Now, I understand that people that wear the Christian label are capable of doing horrendous things. I understand that. But uh, let, let's, let's be honest. If you grew up in a home with two committed Christian parents, probably you grew up with a good set of morals. Uh, you had a good chance of growing up where you avoided most of the bad stuff, and that's good. We need homes that teach right and wrong and good morals and Christianity with biblical principles. On the other hand, though, living in that environment, you're, you're, you may not really think sin is all that bad. As a matter of fact, from a societal standpoint, you really haven't done anything bad, right? Never murdered someone, never kidnapped someone, never uh, you know, did all the stuff that you see that, that our society assigns, finds as bad. And because of that, we see sin's not really that big a deal. And because we don't think sin's that big a deal, we don't really think we're lost. And because we don't think we're lost, we kind of scratch our head and wonder why we need Jesus. True? That's the danger of growing up in the, with the gospel of somebody else. It's hard to appreciate the amazing grace of God when you don't think you need it. And that's a, that's a lot of, that's a, what happens a lot of times when we grow up in a spiritually sanitized environment. An old preacher told me once that if I ever wanted to win someone to Christ, I had to get them lost first. Well, the terminology was bad, but his heart was in the right place. I didn't have to get anyone lost. I had to basically tell everyone that they'd gotten themselves lost, right? Um, before people can be saved, they have to understand that they're lost first. Do we understand that, church? That without Jesus Christ, we are hopelessly lost. The default mode of humanity is not heaven. It is hell. Do you understand that? That, that without the saving grace of Jesus Christ, that we are hopelessly and utterly lost. We are incapable of saving ourselves. All right? We are deserving of hell. Our sin has sealed our fate without Jesus Christ. We're done. We're powerless over sin. If we don't understand that, that's the starting point for Christianity. If we never reach that starting point, we will never ever see the need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we will spend our time in church activities and, and wonderful community and everything, but never ever embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ for ourselves. All right? We don't need behavior modification. We need saving. And that's where we have to start this morning. All right? And, and so as I moved from the gospel of somebody else to owning my faith as a young Christian, I want to share a little bit of my journey with you. There are seven things that I noticed as I was reflecting on this, as, as I moved from, from, from the gospel of somebody else to owning my faith in Christ. Seven things I noticed. Now, this is not a checklist. Please do not view this as a checklist. Don't say, well, I've done those seven things. I'm good. No, no. All of us need the grace of Jesus Christ. Nothing uh, is apart from that. But these are seven changes in my life that I either noticed or did as I moved from, from living someone else's faith, the faith of my parents, the faith of my community, to owning it for myself. Here they are. Number one, I found my own church. Now, to be fair, it did have a great deal to do with a pretty 19-year-old college sophomore named Rachel Moore. Okay, um, that greatly helped me choose my new church. I didn't look anywhere else. Okay, that was where I was going. But uh, that, that being said, the church my family was attending at the time wasn't going the direction that I felt God was moving me. Um, and and, and uh, as much as I love you, and I love you being here, if Catalyst is not moving in the direction where you think God is calling you to go, you need to find a church that is 
See, guys, I care so much more about you engaging God's purposes for you than I do about how many people are here on Sunday morning. I really do. And, and I care far more about that. And that may bother some parents or some friends because we want you to be here with us, but if finding your own church is essential for you, owning your own faith, do it and don't apologize. Now, make sure that you're doing it for that reason, though. Don't give me this. I need to find my own church and then go visit Bedside Baptist and Pillow Presbyterian and Lullaby Lutheran on Sunday mornings, okay? Don't give me that. But uh, that being said, finding my own church did something for me. It may seem small, you guys. It may seem small, but it was very significant. It put the responsibility on me. Uh, the service was at a different time than my parents' church. I had to drive myself. I had to set my own uh, alarm. I'd take responsibility for getting there myself on time. I didn't simply get in the car and go where the parents went. And then something else happened. Uh, sometimes my parents were out of town or, or they weren't able to get to church for whatever reason. I went anyway. Like I said, that seems small, no big deal. But it was a big step for me. For owning my own faith meant that I was responsible to getting to church myself with or without my parents, for the first time, initiative was part of my faith. Going to church, regardless of the rest of the family, is a sign that you have ownership of faith. And you say, well, Dave, you saying I ain't a Christian if I don't come to church with my family? No, no, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that taking the initiative myself apart from my family was a big step towards owning my faith. I love coming to church with my family. I love having my family here. I really do. I love being here as a family, worshiping God together, but I would be here even if they weren't, for whatever reason. You see, my, my, my faith is my own. My worship of God is not contingent on who else is here, who else comes with me. Uh, my presence in the church body doesn't depend on who can make it and who can't. My faith is my own. The second thing I, I noticed was I began studying the Bible for myself. I found that 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, all scriptures God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. When I was in college, when all this was going on, uh, I was in a band. Uh, we were a garage band. Really, we played in a garage. And we thought we were great. The neighbors disagreed. But anyway, um, uh, one of the guys, the guitar player, told me one practice that he had just finished reading the New Testament. I was floored. I was like, people read the New Testament? I, mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't have any, any, any problem. I wasn't opposed to it, but I just didn't know people did that. I didn't know that people actually picked up the Bible and read it. I'd never heard that before. And uh, especially at my age, at 19. I, I mean, I knew some Bible stories from times of Sunday. And, and I was in church every Sunday, and I heard the, the scripture that the preacher used, and, but that was pretty much it. It was told to me. But reading the Bible never crossed my mind. So my sophomore year in college, I, I, that was just stuck in the back of my mind. And uh, I, 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 I'll never forget this. I'd gotten back to the fraternity house that I lived in, um, where, and I'll never forget the moment. It was a Sunday night. We'd just gotten back from a major road trip. Uh, we'd, we'd, we'd played uh, played in San Antonio and Arkansas. Imagine a weekend trip: San Antonio and Arkansas, two games, a 12-hour bus ride. We got back about 1 a.m. that night, and uh, 1 a.m. for adults is late, but for college students, it's about the time you're getting started. You know, so uh, it really wasn't all that late. I was exhausted, uh, but uh, I got into bed. 
for some reason, I decided I was going to start reading the Bible, then and there. I don't know why. I'd never picked up the Bible, but he, my friend had said he'd read the New Testament, so I started in Matthew. I knew that. I knew the, the New Testament started in Matthew, and I started reading. And the craziest thing happened, you guys. I met Jesus. Not, not the one that had been taught to me or that society had said there was, but I met the real Jesus that was revealed in Scripture, and I was floored. I had never seen the real Jesus before. And, and uh, it confused me greatly. Quite honestly, I've told you this before. My first impression about reading about Jesus was that he was a jerk. I mean, the things that he said to his followers, I, I would have kind of been offended if I said that to him. Came to him with a question, and, and he, he, they would ask him a question, and he would say, are you still so dull? In an exasperated tone. Uh, he, he, he told his best friend Peter to get behind me. Satan called him Satan. Now, I've been mad at my friends before. I've never called him Satan, Okay. Um, and he made a whip and he was overturning tables, shouting at people, like, man, I've never seen this before. The person of Jesus I met in Scripture was like no one I'd ever met before. Now that was through my very immature eyes. I've, I've, I've come to realize Jesus wasn't a jerk, but he was a real man. He didn't mind saying things that needed to be said. He didn't mind calling things as he saw them. He was compassionate and, 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 and loving and gracious towards people that needed him. And, but he was a true, real man. And he didn't mind upsetting the apple cart if it needed to be upset. I found that out about Jesus. I found out that the concept of Jesus in American culture is very different than the ones revealed in, Bible, in the Bible. And, 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 and I, I, as I realized how spiritually hungry I really was, I devoured the New Testament. I think I read the entire thing in about three weeks. And I just couldn't get enough. Every word that I read was just like a light to my path. And what I'd been searching for my whole life, you guys. And I'd moved from being fed to feeding myself. It's a big, it's a big step towards your faith. To this day, I've read through the entire Bible 17 times cover with, with other studies uh, in between there. Continue to be inspired every time I read it. I'm reading, I'm on my 18th time now. I'm doing the YouVersion Bible app, um, which is the uh, Bible in a Year, uh, YouVersion on my phone. And I invite you to do the same. Read the Bible for yourself. Meet Jesus, the real Jesus. It's a big sign that you're owning your faith for yourself. Third thing I noticed is that I began to view money differently. I really did. Uh, Matthew 6, 21, Jesus says this, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Nothing me measures your dedication to something like how you put your treasure. Your treasure is your two most precious, limited resources, time and money. Nobody has enough of them. Nobody has enough time. Nobody has enough money. So we have to prioritize. And whatever gets your time and your money, your two most valuable resources is what you love or who you love. If you if if ask any sports parent, travel soccer or travel baseball parent, how much time and money they put towards it, my goodness. Um, ask any hunter. Ask anybody who rides motorcycles. Parents, if you get your kids involved in motorcycles, they won't have ever have enough money for drugs. Just letting you know. Okay. Uh, ask anyone who loves something. If you, you say you love your spouse, yet spend zero time and zero money on them, you probably don't love them much. In fact, show me your financial book and your calendar, and I will show you what you love, what has your heart. Okay, Jesus said it himself. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So one of the most significant changes I made from moving from the gospel of somebody else to owning my faith is realizing that God knew everything, and he owns everything. Everything. I decided to move from being a consumer to being a producer. Don't miss this. All right. When I was a kid, my parents paid for everything. I didn't put gas in the car. I didn't pay the mortgage. 
I didn't pay for AC or heat or food. I was a consumer. I was a complete taker. And that's okay when you're a kid. That's also the relationship I had with the church. Um, I went there. I didn't help keep the lights on. I didn't help with the mortgage. I didn't give missions. I didn't give anything. I was a consumer, a complete taker. And that's okay when you're a kid or you're a new Christian. But as I owned my faith, I realized that God had said everything was his. That's not mine. Money doesn't belong to me. It belongs to him. He says the first 10% goes to him. That's what it says. Uh, that's called the tithe. I'm supposed, and I'm, the Bible says I'm supposed to save. I'm supposed to be prepared for a rainy day. So the book of Proverbs talks about that. Um, the Bible clearly talks about the dangers of being in debt. That, that uh, it says I'm to leave no debt unpaid. It's that the continuing debt to love one another in Romans 13, 8. So I, so I decided to join the 10, 10, 80 plan. First 10 to God, second 10 to myself, live on 80%. That's a biblical way of managing money. For where my money is, there my heart is also. Uh, I decided to tithe, save, to pay off debts as quickly as possible. He used my money in God-glorifying ways. That was back in college. If his will and his ways are important to me, I better put my money where my mouth is. That's what I decided. So at age 20, I was going to put into the church more than out. Um, and, and that's a sure sign of owning your faith, seeing yourself as a producer of ministry, not a consumer of it. My two most valuable resources, time and money, are surrendered to Jesus to be used as he saw fit. They're his anyway. Might as well act like it. The fourth change I noticed was this. I began to feel sorrow over my sin without anyone confronting me. This was a big one. This was a big one. Um, 2 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11, Paul writes this. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leads no regret. Uh, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. As I moved from the gospel of somebody else to owning my faith, a strange thing happened. I noticed, I more noticed it than actively pursued it. Things that previously bothered, never bothered me, all of a sudden bothered me deeply. Um, all of a sudden I've been noticing things like my profane mouth. Um, I, I lived in a profanity-laced culture. Um, every team I played on, um, I, don't, I don't think the guys could say they loved their mother without swearing. Um, we, my, my coach in college, we figured that for every five-minute speech he gave us, he could have said it in two minutes if he'd cut out the profanity. Uh, I mean, it was just around, surrounded by it. It never bothered me, and I was part of it. And all of a sudden, I started noticing it bothered me deeply. Then Things I would watch on TV. Didn't have the internet back then, but things I previously thought were funny all of a sudden weren't all that funny. My lack of forgiveness towards people, I started noticing that. I, never bothered me up to that point. All of a sudden it did. And I began to feel not a sense of, oh, you know, a gotcha, or I'm sorry I got caught, but it was this different thing. It was a sorrow over what I'd done. Sorrow, realizing that what I was doing was hurting God, that, that I was hurting the person that loved me. Not a good idea. And, and I, I, was, I, I, I was hurting the ones that, 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 that you love and that love you. Not good. And I experienced exactly what Paul was talking about this, in, in this passage, this godly sorrow that kind of hits you right here when you realize what you're doing isn't right. Without anyone having to tell you, you know. And that's part of moving from the gospel of somebody else to owning your own faith. 
I realized that that was the Holy Spirit working in me, taking a larger role in my life, telling me what was wrong. Um, the fifth one was probably the biggest, most noticeable sign, is that I desired to, to date a Christian woman. Previous to that, I didn't really care who I dated, what they, what they believed or who they were. If they were interested in me, I was interested in them. And that's the way a lot of guys are. I don't know about you ladies, but that's the way a lot of guys are. Someone shows interest in us, hey, we're interested in them. But uh, 2 Corinthians 6.14 said, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? And owning my faith for myself, I realize that I'm so weak and so messed up that if I don't have a, a, a spouse walking through life with me that, that, that values Christ, I'm done. I'm toast. I do not have the strength with a person that I walk through life with. If they're not walking towards Christ, I'm more likely to follow them than Christ. And so I, I, I realized that I'm going to need someone who shared my deepest values, who valued Jesus Christ as number one in their lives. And that was the only way I'd be able to stay faithful. So you guys, marriage is difficult enough when you share the same beliefs in Christ, when you share faith commitments. It's difficult enough with that. All right? So, uh, so people come to me and ask, should a Christian date a non-Christian? Absolutely not. It's not because they're so awful or terrible. It's just that you are moving in a different direction. If Christ is number one in your life, you're moving towards Christ, and they're moving towards something else, and your marriage is in trouble if you don't believe that. I've seen far too many people to try to, try to make that work. It always ends up in one of two things. It ends up in compromise. You settle for a lukewarm, uh, a non-threatening Christian existence so you don't upset your partner, or two, it leads to frustration. Most Christians that I know that date or marry a non-Christian eventually stop coming to church. You can, you, you can, you can put it on a calendar. Uh, you can ask any pastor. They all, they all know several people who are involved, serving, you know, pursuing Christ. They start dating or marry the wrong person, never see them again. Um, dating the wrong person is the quickest way to derail your faith in Christ. I found, I found that on others run into all kinds of problems. For example, Christian wants to tithe. Non-believer doesn't want to tithe. All of a sudden, they start arguing about money. One of the biggest marriage uh, quarrels there is. Uh, they have kids. Christian wants to raise them in the faith. The other doesn't or, or, or agrees but doesn't help. The kids get confused because mom or dad is really pursuing Christ and the, and, and the other one isn't. And so they get confused. When I was in youth ministry, I remember a young man whose mother was a Christian and father wasn't. I wanted to go on our mission trip to Hurricane Katrina, do Hurricane Katrina relief. Mom wanted to go. Dad didn't. All kinds of conflict happened. Okay, when you own your own faith, when you aren't living the gospel somebody else, Dating and marrying someone else who shares your deepest faith convictions becomes your only option. And this was a major change for me, you guys, because I had never dated a Christian before. Before I met the woman who became my wife, I had never dated a Christian before. So it wasn't that important to me. I didn't know you're supposed to. I'm, I'm probably somebody told me, but I wasn't listening. I thought like everybody else, oh, I can make this work. Or oh, that's really not that big a deal. Yes, it is. It's huge. Faith and convictions. Very important to me when I took ownership of my faith. Um, the next thing that happened, I began to have a consuming passion to be transformed to be like Christ. Romans 12, 2, Paul writes this, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and prove what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Jesus became my hero. I wanted to be like him. I wanted to imitate him. All my heroes I've always wanted to imitate. Jesus was no exception. 
In the, in the 1800s, author named Charles Sheldon wrote the book In His Steps, where he, he, a, a town's big, uh, revival set off in this town because they started asking, what would Jesus do? That's where the What Would Jesus Do bracelets came. It's from a book from the 1800s by Charles Sheldon called In His Steps. Um, one particular story that always stuck out with me was the newspaper editor. He had been printing everything, and then all of a sudden he asked, what would Jesus do if he was editor of this paper? And there was a, I don't know why he chose, but there was a boxing match, uh, boxing ring, bout, boxing match. And, uh, and he'd written up a, 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 an article about it, and he decided to cut it out. He didn't think that Jesus would promote boxing. I don't know why, but that, that's just what he chose. And so the next day, the paper boy's selling newspapers, and, and, and they're selling like hotcakes. And, and all of a sudden, a guy flips through the sports page. He goes, hey, hey, kid, where's the write-up about the fight last night? And the newspaper boy said, we're not covering boxing anymore. And so the, the guy threw the paper back, demanded his money back. I'll never forget that. The reason that story stuck in my mind was I was in seminary at the time. I read that book. And I asked, could I make a financial decision like that that would cost me? Could I do that? Did I have the guts of that newspaper editor, knowing that following Jesus, asking what he would do would cost me, maybe cost me a lot? Do I have those kind of guts? I remember that. As I moved into ownership of my own faith, I realized that being a Christian is, to a greater and greater degree, doing what Jesus would do if he had your talents, your time, your life, your financial resources, your job, your family. If Jesus had all of those things, what would he do? That's what a Christian is. That's what a Christian does. And conformity, guys, to a sick society is to be sick. I, I, don't, I don't need to tell you guys that, that doing what Jesus would do if he had all of your life is really running opposite this culture. Um, That's why the apostle says, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Be transformed, the Bible says, by the renewing of your mind. We're called to think differently, biblically, about our lives. Not conforming to the path of least resistance, but God, finding God's will and running after it. If you don't have a consuming passion to be transformed to be like Jesus, I would like to suggest to you that you've accepted the gospel of somebody else and haven't owned your faith for yourself. Because that's the number one desire of the Christian. And the last thing I noticed, I began to have a passion to share Christ with others. Having seen what Christ had done for me, what he had saved me from, what my path would be without Christ. My goodness, you guys. I began desiring to see others have that same freedom. I began to desire for others to have that same relationship with Christ, the, the joy of, 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 uh, of owning your own faith, the, the, not your parents, but, but owning your own faith, the joy of that, having your sins forgiven, the joy of the, of the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the communion, the, the, I mean, my goodness, I wanted people to, to, to experience that too. And the only way they were gonna do that is if they heard from me about Jesus Christ. Uh, I, I don't think that it's possible for a, a non-Christian to lead someone to Christ. I don't think it's possible. But when you own your faith for yourself, you will have a passion to see other people experience what you've experienced. Jeremiah 20, verse 9 says this, but if I say I will not mention his word or speak anymore in his name, his word in my heart like fire, a fire shut up in my bones, I'm weary of holding it in, indeed I cannot. I'm invite the band to come on back up. And so I want to ask you, are you living the gospel of somebody else? 
Are you living your parents' faith, your community's faith, or, or, or your friend's faith, but you've never owned it for yourself? You've never realized that you're lost. You've never realized your need for Jesus and his grace. If you have never, if you've never, maybe you've been in church all your life and you've never realized that, I'm gonna ask you today to, to commit your life and yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ, to join, with, to join the church, to join his faithful, to become a Christian today. There is nothing you need, uh, there's nothing more important than that decision. Nothing more. I want to share with you, because I know what Christ has done for me, the joy of having my sins forgiven, not being bound by the past, the joy of the purpose that he gives us, the purpose and the mission that he, uh, he gives us, the life that we're able to live, and then when this life is over, being taken to heaven with him for eternity. There's nothing on this earth worth sacrificing that. So I wanna ask you, are you living the gospel somebody else, or have you owned your faith for yourself? Only you know that. But if you need help moving from the gospel of somebody else to owning your own faith, please come talk to me. Talk, find a, a Christian, uh, an, an elder, somebody that, that, that you trust, somebody who is mature in the faith, and talk with them. Because our churches are full of people, wonderful people, loving people, amazing people that are living the gospel of somebody else, thinking maybe they're God's grandchild. God doesn't have grandchildren. He only has children. I want you to think about that as we stand up and we, and we, and we worship together. Maybe for the